morning with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. I just want to read uh, two verses, uh, verse 16 and 17. When he had baptized And Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Amen. Now we're all very uh, familiar with signs and symbols today. Before you pass your driving test, uh, you better become well acquainted uh, with those symbols, particularly road signs that don't require any words. In places like airports where there are lots of people speaking lots of different languages, it is absolutely imperative that you're able to find a toilet. And whether the words above the toilet are in Arabic or in Urdu, It matters not, because there will be a little sign above each door, a woman in a skirt and a man in a pair of trousers. And so by that we know which door to go through, and go through the wrong one at your peril, I might add. Now advertisers are especially savvy uh, to the power of having a good symbol. Uh, You think of the Apple logo with the bite out of it. Or the the Nike swoosh, the big tick of Nike. Or the McDonald's golden arches. And of course all of these are instantly, immediately and universally recognized. There's hardly anywhere you go in the world that you'll not see one or other of those signs. And uh, companies spend a great deal of time and effort and care and money uh, to produce uh, a symbol that will be highly recognizable. And they have learned that uh, the simpler the symbol, the more memorable it is. And it's interesting that religion, all three great world religions, all of them, although not intentionally, but they have, have this concept also. Christianity has its cross. Uh, Judaism has its Star of David. And Islam has its crescent moon. And all of those, again, are symbols that are very easily uh, recognizable. Now, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, God has also chosen to reveal him to us by easily recognized symbols. Throughout Scripture, he is revealed unto us through the symbolism of fire, of water, of wind, of oil, of rain, and these things are easily understood. And of course, they reveal to us the various facets uh, of the Holy Spirit's character and nature to us. They build up a picture of what the Holy Spirit is like in our mind's eye. Uh, And just as importantly for us, uh, that we should be like the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Uh, The title of this message today is the mark of the spirit-filled believer. The mark of the spirit 
faith-filled believer. Now, some of the most beautiful aspects of the Holy Spirit's nature is revealed to us through the symbol of a dove. A dove. We saw there in the scriptures that we read that Jesus being baptized, that the Holy Spirit as a dove descended and alighted upon the Lord Jesus. And so a simple symbol like a dove uh, speaks very much to us of the Holy Spirit. Now we want the fire of the Holy Spirit so that we can glow. We want the wind of the Holy Spirit to blow. We want the living waters of the Holy Spirit to flow. And we also absolutely need the dove of the Holy Spirit to help us to grow. We want the dynamis of the Spirit, but what of the dove? Do we want the dove of the Spirit? Now the first symbol in the, of the Holy Spirit we see in the New Testament, of course, is this dove descending upon the Lord at his baptism. And that beautiful commendation that the Father gives the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What a lovely commendation, well pleased. What a wonderful commendation that would be upon our lives if God was to say to us, in you I am well pleased. And so the Holy Spirit was pleased to come upon Jesus. The dove was pleased to be identified uh, with him whenever he was being baptized. I want you to turn with me just for a moment to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to see another dove here in Genesis chapter 8. Reading from verse 1. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, in the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. And in the tenth month, and on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand, and he took her and drew her into the ark to himself." Then he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out of the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him any more. Now here in the Old Testament we see a type of, of the Holy Spirit as betrayed in this dove that Noah sent out of the ark. 
Now note here that there was two birds went out of the ark, the raven and the dove. And the reason why he did this was to simply ascertain how far the waters and how quickly they were receding. And knowing that these two birds were very different in nature uh, by their actions, whenever he would send them out of the ark, by their actions he would know whether the water had receded enough to be able to go out into dry land. So that was the purpose of sending out those two. Now, I want us then just for a moment to compare the raven uh, with the dove. First of all, the raven. The raven is the largest member of the crow family. It is a carrion bird. In other words, it lives and it feeds on dead and the dying, on carcasses. It's attracted to death and decay. Now, biblically speaking, the raven is an unclean bird. And not only is it a carrion bird, but it also will on occasions attack small animals like rabbits and small birds and kill them and eat them. And so although it's not officially a bird of prey, but in practice and in reality, even though it's a carrion bird for the most part, but yet it will kill and it will eat uh, living animals. Now it says here that it went out to and fro, to and fro, to and fro, going forth and returning, going forth and perhaps sitting on a dead carcass that was floating about, then when it had its fill, returning to the ark. Not actually going into the ark, but just probably on the ark, and then it would go back out again, feast another little while, come back again, out, back, to and fro. And then eventually it went out and it didn't come back. Obviously it found enough dead and dying carcasses in order to uh, feast itself and gorge itself. Now, the dove, which is an entirely different nature of a bird, the first time the dove was sent out, it says, but the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. In other words, there was nothing out there for the dove to light on. There was nothing that was attractive to it. There was nothing out there that was appealing to it. The flesh of this world did not appeal to the dove. You see where I'm going with this? The flesh of this world did not appeal to the dove. She found no pleasure in a world that was under the judgment of God. And so, it come back again. And the difference between, again, between the raven and the dove, it says that Noah, he put out his hand and took her and drew her onto himself into the ark. Unlike the raven who simply returned to the ark, the dove returned to the master of the ark. Now what I want to say here, first of all, and remembering what the thrust of the message is, the mark of the spirit-filled believer. The first thing I want to say about the dove here, representing the Holy Spirit, representing what we should be like, because we, Holy Spirit, indwells us, the dove is a clean bird. It's a clean bird. It's not a carrion bird. It's a clean bird. The mark of the spirit-filled believer is purity. Purity. He is the Holy Spirit and he indwells us and if the Holy Spirit 
indwells us, then there should be a mark of purity in our lives. In 1 Timothy 4.12, Apostle Paul is writing to young pastor called Timothy. And he was a young man. Titus was an older man, but Timothy was just a young man. And Paul writes to him, and in his first letter, letter 1 Timothy 4.12, he says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Let no one despise your youth. Let no one be able to say anything against you just because you're a young man. And obviously a young man with not much experience, just beginning ministry. You know, there's churches, uh, often when I meet with pastors, particularly pastors in denominations, uh, and, and they're without a pastor, and they're looking for another pastor. And I say to them, well, well what kind of pastor are you looking for? Well, we don't want a young one. Well, we don't want one that's just out of Bible college because they're too inexperienced. Well, this young man was inexperienced. He was just a young man just starting out in ministry. And so Paul's making sure, hey, listen, you're just young, you're just starting out, but make sure nobody's going to be able to say anything against you. You know, so in other words, let no one despise you yet, but be an example to them. You set the standard, even though you're a young man, you set the standard in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Because they'll be watching you. Their eye will be on you. The eyes of the world are on us, aren't they? They watch us. And they look to see how we live. Because all the talking in the world is not going to impress them unless the walk tallies with the talk. And again in First Timothy 5.22, Paul says, Don't share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. And there's an admonition. Just because everybody else is doing stuff doesn't mean that we should do it. There's lots of things Muslims wouldn't do that Christians do. There's things even Mormons wouldn't do that Christians do. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Here's John writing in his letters to the church. He's an old, old man. He's the senior man of the church. He's the only one, in fact, of the original apostles that has left. The rest became dead martyrs. And here he is, and he's writing because he knows his time is short. And he writes about truth, a lot of that in his letters. He writes a lot about love, but also... He's writing about purity. Keep yourself pure. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Why? Because the pagan world that they lived in was full of stuff. Full of filth and full of perversions. All around them every single day. You think it was bad today? It was bad then too. So he says keep yourself pure. Remember Paul writing to the church at Philippi? Remember in chapter 4 when he 
told them what to think about, what to keep their minds and their thoughts upon, things that were noble, things of a good report, if there's any virtue. And he says, also, whatever things are pure, think on these things. And so as believers filled with God's Spirit, the mark of purity should be upon our lives. That doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we couldn't slip or we couldn't fall. But our intention, our aim, our desire, our want to, our walk to the best of our ability with the grace of God is to keep ourselves pure. Listen, can I put it bluntly? We live in a sewer, don't we? Television, everything's just blasting us all day long. We live in a sewer. I was, I was looking at the paper the other day and it talked to a mother. She was complaining and she had written to the paper complaining that her 11-year-old boy was addicted to porn on the internet. He had a laptop in his own room and she's complaining about her son being addicted to porn. I thought, woman, have you not got a titter of wit? You're not going to announce the sense. What do you think 11-year-olds going to do if they hold the whole internet free for themselves? That's the world that we live in. So we've got to keep ourselves pure because he's the Holy Spirit. The dove was a clean bird. The dove is a bird of peace. It's not a bird of prey. It's a bird of peace. It has no strong talons like an eagle. It has no barbed beak like a buzzard that can rip and tear flesh. It puts up no defense against its attackers. It's a bird of peace. Galatians 5.15, Paul writing to the church says, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Paul's writing to a church, a bunch of believers, and he's warning them, don't get into infighting. Don't let strife begin to consume you. Don't let backbiting, don't let that old stuff get into you because he says if you keep doing that, he says you'll consume one another. See, when people feel threatened or they feel insecure, they tend to lash out, don't they? And they tend to bite and they tend to devour. We all love a little robin. A little robin redbreast brightens a dreary winter's day, doesn't it? When you look out and see it in your back garden. It's a beautiful little bird. But do you know they're a vicious little bird? Do you know that? I mean, they look so nice, don't they? And so sweet. But they're actually a vicious little bird because they're very territorial. If another robin comes into their patch, and if your back garden happens to be their patch, woe betide another robin that comes into their patch because they feel threatened. And because they feel threatened, they go into attack mode. And they would literally attack and attack till they kill, if they have to. Because that's what they're like. Isn't it terrible when fellow believers feeling threatened or feeling insecure just attack, 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 attack? Not much of the dove in that, sure there's not. 
The dove is a bird of peace. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus said, Behold, I send you as sheep among wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The second time Noah sent the dove forth, we read it a moment ago, it came back with a freshly plucked olive leaf in its mouth. <clears throat> now, of course, in the context of the story, that uh, alerted Noah that the waters had really, really receded to the point. Now, they were in the ark a long time. And even when the water stopped, they were in the ark a long time after that until Noah felt absolutely sure that he could go out on the dry land. So obviously this freshly plucked leaf shows us that a seedling had grown up enough for a little leaf to come for the dove to take it. Now, the, the olive branch is ever a symbol of peace and reconciliation, isn't it? We talk about reaching out the olive branch to somebody, and we all know what that means, is I want to have peace with you. I want to be reconciled to you. I'm offering reconciliation here. <clears throat> and so the judgment was passed in her story. Once again, God and man could be reconciled. Punishment was being replaced with peace. The Holy Spirit came into this world to reconcile men back to God. He is the one who brings the peace of God, the Bible says in Philippians 4, that passes, that transcends all understanding. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that does that, that brings peace and reconciliation. And because we are born again of God's Spirit, the Bible says that we have peace through God. We have peace with God and we have the peace of God because the Holy Spirit comes and he brings peace and he brings reconciliation. <clears throat> Our job as Spirit-filled believers is to bring peace and reconciliation and bring men back to God and to be able to introduce men to God and bring peace into their hearts and into their lives. <clears throat> That's the mark of one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Not to have strife, not to have contention continually, but to be able to bring peace. Notice here that the dove rested on Jesus, the dove of peace. And what a tremendous peaceful spirit Jesus had and what a promise he gave to us that when he would leave that he would give us his peace my peace I give unto you not that the world's got but my peace I give unto you and so the dove the Holy Spirit here represents peace the dove is a faithful bird Doves are generally believed to be monogamous, that they partner for life, that they mate for life. It's a faithful bird. It doesn't leave its first love. Faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to his church, Faithfulness to his call in our lives is a mark 
of a spirit-filled believer. God looks for faithfulness. Remember the parable. At the end of the parable, he says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And so there's something about being faithful. Bible speaks much of being faithful. He that endures to the end shall be saved. Hold fast that which you have, that no one take your crown. In 1 Corinthians 4.2, Paul says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. It's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. That's the emphasis. You could be as talented and as gifted as anybody, but if you're not faithful, it's not going to work. It's not going to build God's kingdom. You'll come and you'll go. And lots of people come and go. They don't stick at anything anymore. But when you're faithful and you're loyal and you're trustworthy, that's what God looks for and he especially looks for in his kingdom. Jesus said in another parable, remember the parable of the talents, he that is faithful in the least will be faithful also in much. Do you know that God sometimes tests us? He gives us a little thing to do or he gives us a little something to have just to see how faithful we will be with that. And if we're not faithful in the little, we're not going to get the much because he feels that he just can't trust us. We can't handle it because we're not faithful to it. But if we're faithful, then can God can give us a little bit more. And that was the lesson in that particular parable. And so, God is looking for faithfulness. In Hebrews 3 and 6, just as Moses was faithful over his household, which was Israel, so Jesus was faithful over his own household, which is the church. Hmm. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Timothy was faithful in the Lord. There's a nice recommendation, isn't it? Timothy was faithful in the Lord. Now I look back over the life of this church and I see people who have been faithful Faithful to the nth degree. Many has come, many has gone. But there are those who have been faithful, who have stayed the course. And boy, that does a pastor's heart good when you are faithful. John 14 and 6, Jesus says, I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper, helper that he may abide with you forever. It is the nature of the Holy Spirit to be faithful to us. So when that nature of the Holy Spirit is in us, then we'll be faithful too. And so the dove is a faithful bird. But did you know the dove is a bird that mourns? When its mate dies, it mourns its loss. Isaiah 38, 14, Hezekiah said, I mourn as a dove. 
I mourn as a dove. A dove has got a plaintive cry. Isaiah 59.11, Isaiah said, We all mourn sadly like doves. The mark of a spirit-filled believer is that they mourn for the loss of men's souls. They grieve for the backslider. It breaks their heart to see their loved ones going astray and taking a wrong path. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, didn't he? He says, how off would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under its wings, but you would not. Therefore your house is left unto you desolate. He saw what the result of that would be, and he wept over Jerusalem. Jeremiah wept over Jerusalem also. Are we bothered that our loved ones are not saved? Does it grieve us? Does it grieve us? when they backslide? Does it bother us that all around us that are unsaved, that are marching to lost eternity faster than we're reaching? Does it bother us? Because if we're spirit-filled believers, it will bother us. Somewhere in our being, it will bother us that people are lost, that our loved ones are going to hell, literally going to lost eternity forever. It bothers us. That's because the Holy Spirit, that's what he's like. He puts that burden in our hearts. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's writing here to the church. This was a church that had many problems. help if I was at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 wouldn't it? Instead of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that's where I want to go Now Paul writing here in verse 8 2 Corinthians 7 verse 8 for even if I made you sorry with my letter I do not regret it Though I did regret it, what does that mean? It means when he wrote it, because this was a strong, strong letter of rebuke to get their house in order. And when he wrote it and he sent it, for a moment he thought, boy, that's strong. <laughs> mm. Do you ever say something or write something or phone something and think after it, mm, boy, that was a bit strong. But it had to be done. It had to be said. And so this is what he's saying. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. In other words, I don't regret it now. Though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For you observe this very thing that you sorrowed 
in a godly manner. What was the result of that? What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So Paul writes this letter. And he rebukes them firmly and sternly. Because he's concerned about their souls. And he's concerned about their error. And he's concerned where their lifestyle has taken them. And he writes a very strongly worded letter. And thank God when they got it, they were sorry. And they were sorry after a godly way. It wasn't just sorry that they were caught on. But they were sorry that actually they had offended God. And that's what true repentance is. It's not just being sorry that we're caught in something, but we're sorry that we have offended Almighty God and we repent of it and we turn from it and we do the right thing. And so the mark of a spirit-filled believer is to feel sorrow for others who are on a wrong path, who are going down the wrong track, and it grieves us to see that because we know the end result, what it's going to be. And we're sorry. Perhaps we may even shed tears over that. But, what about ourselves? Because in Matthew 5 and 4, the second beatitude, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now this is not talking about somebody who's lost a loved one. Oftentimes, as preachers, we use that in that context. And that's fine, but it's not really what he's saying, really. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be Comfort it. Now, what this means is, blessed are we when we realize our failures, our sins, our mistakes, the things that we have allowed become between us and the Lord, and we grieve for our loss. We realize where we are, and we grieve for it. And we say, Lord, I want back that relationship I had with you. I want back the situation where I used to be, the life that I used to have. I want that back, Lord, where I was joyful, where I felt the presence of God, where I felt the peace of God in my heart. And we realize we have lost that, and we mourn that. We want that back. We get a hunger to get that back. Blessed are those who mourn. In that sense, he says, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. That's why it says in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do you know we never read of the Holy Spirit being angry? But we read of him being grieved. We read of him being vexed because he's sensitive and he feels. And oftentimes what we do grieves him and he feels it. And he's not really at home in a heart that is bitter and angry and vindictive and malicious. No. Because the fruit of the Spirit is what? The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. It's peace. It's long-suffering. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. It's gentleness. It's self-control. And so if the Holy Spirit is living within us and if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, then his fruit will become evident because that's his nature, isn't it? 
That's what he's like. And then finally, the Holy Spirit is a symbol. Sorry, the dove is a symbol of love. Turtle doves have always been a symbol of love, haven't they? Turtle doves. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. Here's how it reads. My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. And of course we know that the Song of Solomon is a love story. The heart of it is a love story between the Shulamite and her shepherd. And here is a beautiful sentence. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in her land. The dove has no gall. There's no gall. There's no bitter part in it. The dove represents love. And the Holy Spirit is not just the spirit of truth, but he's the spirit of love. Because Romans 5 and 5 says that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The first fruit of the Holy Spirit, we read a moment ago, is love. The first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And that's why the Apostle Paul, when he's writing about the gifts in 1 Corinthians, the two gift chapters, 12 and 14, what does he put in between those two chapters? The love chapter. And it's very deliberate. Because that is the mark of the spirit-filled believer. The Apostle John, again, he's an old man. He's writing his last words. And 1 John 4 Here's what he says, Beloved, verse 7, this says, 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this, the love of God was manifested, in this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love, of, the love that God has for us because God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. 
But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, he who loves God must love his brother also. So another mark of the Spirit-filled believer is the love that the Holy Spirit pours out of our hearts. Not just to God, but to one another. And to the degree that we show the love of God to others, to that degree we're filled with the Spirit of God. And so the dove is a perfect example of the Holy Spirit and his facets, his nature, his character. And the more we are like the Holy Spirit, the more of that nature of his will flow from us and will show from us to the lives of others. They may not understand it, they may not know what it is, but they'll know there's something different about the Spirit-filled believer because of what the Holy Spirit has put within us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the heavenly dove. We thank you for the Holy Spirit abiding, living within us. That even our bodies is his temple on earth. This is where the Holy Spirit resides in born-again believers. And so we thank you for his gifts and his graces, his fruit, his works, we thank that he resides within each of us today. Holy Spirit, help us to exhibit your nature, your ways, your attitudes as we walk among men. That they may see something different within each of us that will draw them to Christ, that will draw them to the Savior, because that's your ministry to draw men unto Christ, the Son of God. So help us to be that and to do that, that Christ may be glorified in us through the work and through the nature of the Holy Spirit. And so we give you thanks. We praise you for who you are, for what you do in each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.